Section 4 of Chapters on Evolution by Andrew Wilson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2 The Study of Biology, Part 2. Turning to the second question asked by biological science regarding every living being, how does it live, we find the science of physiology credited with furnishing the reply to this latter query. Physiology is the science of functions, a term translatable into meaning that branch of inquiry which shows us how the living mechanism works and how life is supported in virtue of defined actions which it is the duty of that mechanism to perform. The watchmaker or other artificer who, setting the mechanism he has constructed in motion, professed to instruct us in the manner of its working, would be showing us the physiology of the machine, just as previously, when describing its structure, he taught us its morphology. We may go further still and add that, without a preliminary knowledge of structure, the intelligent appreciation of function or working is impossible of attainment. The exact manner in which a watch performs its duties can only be comprehended after an examination of its anatomy or the disposition of its parts. Hence, in living beings, how life is carried on is a question only to be answered from the knowledge and by the aid of the considerations which the examination of their structure affords and supplies. Summing up the history of the living being in action which physiology writes for us, we may say that three great functions are performed by every animal and by every plant. The living being has first to nourish itself, to provide for the continual wear and tear to which, in the mere act of living and being, its frame is subjected. The first function of nutrition thus provides for the support of the individual animal or plant. But death is continually thinning the ranks of animal and plant species. As local death or the decay of the particles of the individual body is a constant concomitant of individual life, no less true is it that general death is an invariable accompaniment of the life of the race or species. As nutrition, the act of taking and assimilating food, repairs individual loss, so the function of reproduction repairs the loss and fills the gaps which death has made in the ranks of the race. New beings, through the exercise of this latter function, are brought into the world to take the place on the stage of life of the actors whose parts in the biological drama have already been played out. Lastly, in the exercise of its living powers, the animal or plant is found to possess certain means for acquiring relations of more or less definite kind with its surroundings. An amoeba, in its way a mere speck of protoplasm, is seen under the microscope to contract its jelly-like body when a food particle touches its substance, and, as the result of the contact, the protoplasmic speck engulfs the atom in question and duly assimilates it. But for this property of sensitiveness, the life of the animacule would be equivalent to the existence of the mineral. Its power of nourishing its frame and of receiving food really depends on its sensitiveness to the outward impressions produced by the chance contact with its body of the external particles on which it feeds. Withdraw from the protoplasm this sensitiveness, and your animacule would starve. Sensation and a power of acting, like human units of official nature upon information received through sensation, is a universal attribute of life. Even the fixed plant may, as in the Venus flytrap, Dionea, 
develop a more sensitive and elaborate apparatus for the capture of prey than many animals of tolerably high grade and in all plants there exists living protoplasm which as its first characteristic exhibits sensitiveness and a power of contraction a snail irritated by touching the tip of its tentacles withdraws into the obscurity of private life for a while and indicates that it possesses not merely a nervous apparatus analogous to our own but that such apparatus is used in an exactly similar fashion a broad likeness exists between a snail's retirement into its shell when touched and the human act of withdrawing the head from a threatened blow and so we find that from the animalcule to man from the lowest plant to the highest member of the vegetable kingdom there exist means whereby the living being through the property of sensitiveness or irritability as we may term the general function of nervous tissue or its representative is brought into relation with its surroundings this act of relating itself to the outer world in which it lives constitutes the third function of life wherever found the nerve acts whereby man is enabled to think feel and move the actions whereby a daisy closes its florets when the chill of evening falls upon the world the act of a venus's fly-trap or a sundew in capturing the insects on which like vegetable spiders these plants feed and the humbler manifestations of sensation seen in the sluggish movement of an animalcule or in the cells of a seaweed are bound together in one harmonious function which we name that of relation innervation or irritability to nourish itself to reproduce its kind and to maintain relations with the world in which it lives such is the whole physiological duty of man and animalcule alike and in the survey of these three functions is comprehended the answer to our second question how does the animal or plant live the third inquiry of the biologist as we have seen relates to the place and position of the living being on the surface of the world whether it be found on the earth itself or in the waters under the earth whence by deep-sea research the knowledge of its habitat has been drawn every animal and every plant besides a name and designation possesses a local habitation on the earth's surface the study of structure and the knowledge afforded by physiology take no account of the dwelling places of animals and plants where is it found is thus a question which must also be asked of the biologist and for the answer we depend upon a third branch of biology to which the name of distribution has been given the purport of the inquiry where is it found requires no explanation the most natural of queries concerning a living being is that which the child might ask concerning the native habitation of an animal or plant outward nature applies too forcibly to us to render the question where does it come from an unnatural one when applied to the animal or plant the difference between our own land and habitation and those of other men being included in some such interrogation as that involved in the questions which the science of distribution professes to answer no more interesting queries can well be imagined within the whole of natural history study than those included within the sphere of this third division of biology why for instance are kangaroos and animals of like grade only found in australia and adjacent islands why are the opossums near relations of the kangaroos absent from the australian home of their nearest kith and kin and why do they occur in america 
when natural expectation would have placed them in Australia? Why are antelopes well-nigh confined to Africa, which has no true deer, whilst the deer are otherwise worldwide in their distribution? Why are hummingbirds only found in the New World, over the length and breadth of which they are widely distributed? Why are the monkeys of America absolutely different from those of the Old World? And why are those found in Madagascar, in turn, so varied from their neighbors of Asia and Africa? Why are sloths and armadillos only found in South America? Such are a very few which distribution asks, and to which this science endeavors to supply an answer. We thus perceive clearly enough that the situation and position of an animal or plant on the surface of the earth is no mere matter of chance, but it is as much the result of law and has been as clearly brought about by the circumstances which regulate existence as a whole as its structure is the result of laws of development acting in definite fashion and ordered sequence. Distribution, it is true, is a biological science as yet in its infancy. It presents us, we may note, with two aspects, under one of which we settle the place and position of an animal in space, that is, in the world as it now exists, such is geographical distribution. Through the other aspect of this science, we determine, by the aid of the history of fossils, whether it had an existence in the past history of our Earth, and if so, under what conditions it lived. This latter phase of the subject is named geological distribution, or distribution in time. The importance of distribution as a branch of biology grows and increases daily, as we perceive that the answers to many puzzles and problems of life are bound up in the replies we are able to furnish to the question, where is the animal or plant found? At this stage of biological investigation, many naturalists might be tempted to call a halt having ascertained as fully as may be the structure physiology and distribution of an animal or plant the investigation of the living form might be regarded as complete contrarywise however the tendency of the biology of past years has been to lay increasing stress on a fourth inquiry concerning every living thing namely how has it come to be what it is such a question is tantamount to the inquiry how and why was the living being created so? An interrogation which, even a few years back, would have sounded as an attempt to probe the mystery of divine intent, and which, as such, would have been relegated to the domain of the unscientific, if not to that of the impious, as well. But considerations of theoretical impiety have no effect in face of the need for knowledge. If the speculation how any planet was framed and if the formation of a nebular hypothesis or the promulgation of a theory of elliptical orbits was a warrantable procedure, nay, even a necessity, of astronomical knowledge, one may well be excused for failing to discover the unwarrantableness of speculation concerning the origin of animals and plants, especially, too, if the way of creation, as biological science believes, has not been through successive acts of supernatural interference with the matter of life and the manner of living, but through the modification, slow, gradual, natural, and prolonged, of pre-existing species, the justification for the query, how has this animal or that plant assumed its form and place in the world, lies on the face of nature itself. If, as is apparent to all biologists, at least, 
the way of creation is traceable in the forms and developments of living beings, we are bound to investigate that history as a part of the duty laid upon scientific truth-seeking and upon biological investigation. The impiety so much talked of in past years, but of which one happily hears but little now, if it exists at all, is illustrated solely in the absolute skepticism of those who refuse to admit and believe in the right of man to read and construe, as reason dictates, the records written in the fair face of creation itself. Persons who deem it impious in the scientist to assert that he can trace the evolution of this animal or that plant present the best possible frame of mind for the development of the very skepticism the existence of which they are the first to deplore. The willful folding of the hands in deprecation of scientific investigation and the shutting of the eyes in a so-called orthodox and slumbering ignorance of the facts of nature is the procedure of all others best calculated to sap the foundations of religion itself. It is such ideas which Dr. Martineau, with his accustomed ability, has ably denounced when he says, quote, what indeed have we found by moving out along all radii into the infinite, that the whole is woven together in one sublime tissue of intellectual relations, geometric and physical, the realized original of which all our science is but the partial copy, that science is the crowning product and supreme expression of human reason, unless, therefore, it takes more mental faculty to construe a universe than to cause it to read the book of nature than to write it. We must more than ever look upon its sublime face as the living appeal of thought to thought." Unquote. These are words worth reflecting upon, and they certainly admit, from the side of liberal theology, the full, free, and unrestrained right of science to investigate fully, and hopefully whatever facts or aspects of nature lie to her hand. They present, if need exists for such apology, the fullest justification of the scientific investigator's work, when he endeavors to trace, through the mazes and byways of evolution, the manner in which the living world and all that is therein comprised has been formed, molded, and perfected, as we now find it. If, therefore, as we shall hereafter see, there are means and ways, clues and traces, to be found in nature for the study of the method through which living beings have come to assume their existing order, it were but folly to deny our right to utilize such means to the full, and to extend that knowledge, the increase of which Bacon wisely declared, tended to the relief of man's estate. Etiology, or the science of causes, thus supplies us with the reply to the last of the four queries which concern the nature of animals and plants. In itself, this branch of inquiry connects the other three departments. It utilizes the knowledge which structure, physiology, and distribution collect and systematize. It supplies the natural termination to all inquiries respecting the history of living beings. Since we believe that the causes which have wrought out the existing order of nature have left traces of their operation in the living universe, which traces, like the silver thread running through the many-colored pattern, serve to link together the interests and to show the harmonies which underlie the varied warp and woof of life. To fix these methods of biological study the more firmly upon our minds, we may select, as the subject of a brief exposition, the natural history of a kangaroo, 
an animal form sufficiently distinct and specialized to render the details of its biological study a matter of easy comprehension. No animal form is more familiar as being foreign to our own country than the kangaroo, and its history, like that of every other living being, familiar or otherwise, must be investigated along the lines we have just laid down. The question, what is it, is answered by morphology, and a large number of very interesting replies would be found amongst the answers to the questions of the science of structure. We should thus be informed, as a primary fact of kangaroo history, that it is a vertebrate, or backboned animal, that it agrees in the general type of its body with all fishes, reptiles, birds, and quadrupeds, and we should, moreover, speedily discover by even a cursory anatomical examination that it belongs to the quadruped class, and presents, essentially, the same general characteristics which all mammals or quadrupeds, from the whale upwards to the lion, dog, rat, sheep, ape, and man, agree in possessing. But the more personal history of our kangaroo would show wide differences in structure from the organization of ordinary quadrupeds. We should be struck by the low type of its brain as compared with the brain of ordinary quadrupeds. We should note two curious bones unknown in common animals, and which arise from the front of the kangaroo's haunch bones. These are the so-called marsupial bones, on which the pouch these animals possess is supported. In connection with this fact of kangaroo structure, we should also discover that the young kangaroo is born in an immature condition, that it is thereafter transferred to the pouch of its mother, and that it exists therein for many days after birth, being duly nourished by the secretion of the milk glands which open into the pouch. We might also note that the kangaroos, as every visitor to the zoological gardens knows, possess hind limbs which are developed out of all proportion to the forelegs. In its resting posture, it sits upon a kind of tripod, or three-legged stool, formed by the tail and two hind limbs. And when the skeleton of the hind limb is examined, we find further that the great apparent length of the foot is in reality due to the elongation of the animal's instep bones. The foot, we may lastly note, possesses four toes, whereof one, the fourth toe, is very large and conspicuous. The fifth toe is smaller than the fourth, and the remaining two, placed to the inner side of the other toes, are very small and united together by a fold of skin. There is no first or great toe in the kangaroo, and the two large toes forming the bulk of the animal's foot are the fourth and fifth toes. The two small and rudimentary toes corresponding to the second and third toes in ourselves. Thus much a brief study of anatomy would teach us about the kangaroo. Of its development nothing need be said beyond noting the fact that it is formed and fashioned after the manner, firstly, of all vertebrates in general, and, secondly, of all other quadrupeds in particular. Kangaroo development stops short, so to speak, at a lower level than the development of such an animal as a dog, and at a considerably lower level than that of an ape or a man. But if any proof of the exact nature of the kangaroo were wanting, such facts as those elucidated by its development would at once and indisputably settle its relationship to ourselves as a low member of our own great class. Next, as to its classification. What, it may be asked, is the kangaroo's place in nature? 
as the claims of structure settled the place and position of whale and fish in the animal series so the morphology of the kangaroo allocates it to a situation in the quadruped class the structure of many other animals is found to present a striking likeness to that of the kangaroo the opossums the wombats the native bears and hyenas of australian colonists the kangaroo rats the phalangers the bandicoots and allied forms all with the exception of the opossums confined to the australian province exhibit evident affinities to kangaroo structure relying upon structure and development would be found to strengthen the evidence of morphology we should place these animals along with the kangaroo in a special order of quadrupeds to which we give the name of marsupials or pouched animals these animals would agree with the kangaroo not merely in lowness of brain structure in the possession of the curious marsupial bones in the general arrangement and even special form of internal organs and in the peculiar shape of the lower jaw but also in the matter of the foot structure very striking is it to observe the prevalence of the one type in the feet of this varied assortment of quadrupeds how curious it is says mr darwin that the hind feet of the kangaroo which are so well fitted for bounding over the open plains those of the climbing leaf-eating koala equally well fitted for grasping the branches of trees those for the ground-dwelling insect or root-eating bandicoots and those of some other australian marsupials should all be constructed on the same extraordinary type namely with the bones of the second and third digits extremely slender and enveloped within the same skin so that they appear like a single toe furnished with two claws notwithstanding this similarity of pattern it is obvious that the hind feet of these several animals are used for as widely different purposes as it is possible to conceive the case is rendered all the more striking by the american opossums which follow nearly the same habits of life having feet constructed on the ordinary plan end of section four chapter two part two